Hello everyone, my name is Cliff Duvinois, and after 20 years I returned to my native Michigan and in my quest to reconnect with our great state, I want to talk to the leaders that are behind Michigan's top destinations. I want to learn more about them and the great experiences they and their team provide all of us Michiganders, and perhaps I'll learn a few things along the way. Welcome to the Call of Leadership Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to the show. My name is Cliff Duvinois, your host, and today we have the privilege of being joined by one of the, the the board of directors executive committee member for the American Museum of Magic, which I didn't even know Michigan had one. And I'm very glad that I found them because I have been a fan of magic all of my life. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, Jeffrey Broderick. Jeffrey, how are you? Oh, I seem to be okay. Thank you, Cliff. Excellent. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from and where you grew up? I'm from Western Michigan. I grew up in a small town just north of Muskegon, Michigan, and got interested in magic really early, and it has never left me. Now, is there any any magicians out there that you saw on TV, like David Copperfield or somebody like that, that uh, really inspired you? I'll probably give away my age, but Doug Henning is one that comes to mind immediately. Okay. I met David Copperfield in the early 80s when he was touring. And he, he performed at uh, DeVos Center in Grand Rapids at that time. Excellent. Now, what, so you obviously were exposed to magic as, as a young child. What made you decide to keep pursuing it? Because you were also a magician. Your, your stage name is Jeffrey Allen. What decided to, what, what made you decide to pursue this? I received a, a magic kit for the holiday when, when I was young and I also had, a, there was a magician that came to my school, as I remember, and he's from the Chicago area, deceased now, but recently someone had brought up his name and I went, oh my gosh, that is the person who I remember seeing the first time perform magic, and I thought it was so cool. He was a Chinese magician with, this, with the name Diep Lu. Hmm. I'm still friends with his daughter today after um, discovering that she was on Facebook and so on. Right. We carry on conversations about his many performances through the years and awards, and he's created magic. And so many magicians in Michigan know who he is. Right. Okay. The As far as now, because I, I know you said you received a kit. Are there actual, like if somebody wanted to be a magician, are there schools out there that they can attend? Or is it all, you know, basically online classes? Is it just you buy the kit and you just practice? How How does one start to play around with magic and, and get good at doing various like card tricks or whatever. The magic sets are available even at department stores have magic sets in their games and toys area. At, at a higher level, there are a number of options. One is that we have a local group in Grand Rapids particularly that is a magicians group. The International Brotherhood of Magicians is a, a very old organization and they are made up of rings. They're called magic rings, like, you know, linking rings kind of idea. Right. And, the, and these magic rings are all over, the, all over the world, as a matter of fact. And there's a local one here, and persons can come to it. There's a meeting every month, and the magicians gather and discuss magic and help mentor new aspiring magicians in that field. Okay, excellent. Now, with regards to with regards to the museum, let's talk a little bit about the history. 
when was when was the museum founded? Who founded it? Why did they did they feel the need to find, to, to to start this museum? Okay, we'll start directly with the museum. The museum itself was established in 1978, officially in Marshall, Michigan, and it was founded by Robert and Elaine Lund. Bob Lund, as a teenager, early boy, wanted to be a magician or thought about being a magician, but really did not aspire to getting up in front of people or, or being on the stage. So instead, he started collecting all things magic, just anything about magicians or magic, and that was a lifelong pursuit. He was working at the time when he got his job with uh, Hearst Publishing, so he's a, had a significant role in some of the periodicals even that are still in existence today, major magazines, as editor. And therefore, he was able to, shall I say, procure the, and over time, it became the largest, one of the largest private collections in the world. It is now housed in Marshall, Michigan, downtown, and we say that it is the largest private collection on public display in the world. There are many private collections that are larger, but his is on display publicly. Excellent. And and when was the when was the museum started again? What year? 1978. So 42 years ago. 42 years ago. Wow. Now, how did you get involved with the museum? Because of my interest in magic, when I let me start over. I was in. I lived in Michigan, and then I moved out east for many years, and then came back. And when I came back, I, I rejoined the ring here, the magic ring that I referred to earlier. Right. And also was interested in what, how the ma- magic museum was going, and they asked me to join the board. It's as simple as that. Excellent. Well, that's cool. Now, what are some of the? Because I know you said it's it's uh, the probably one of the largest private collections that is on public display. What are some of the what are some of the events that you typically have going on? And I know we're in the middle of of COVID right now, but what are some of the events that you that you typically have going on at the museum? We always have opened on April 1st. That was Bob's choice. This year we opened June 1st. In previous years and in the future coming years, our plan has always been to have a magician perform on Saturdays so that visitors coming to the museum on Saturdays, particularly around the one o'clock hour, 1 p.m., they uh, can enjoy a performance by a a local magician or even a magician from wherever. Uh, This is every Saturday. In addition to that, we have a summer camp for students or for uh, children to learn magic. We were talking about that earlier. That runs in June. We have an excellent local magician who comes in for the week and assists with that. We have other programs. I know that some of the local schools actually tour the museum every year as part of their, if you will, field trips. And in addition to that, we've more recently used the museum as a place for launching events and so on. As a matter of fact, last night I hosted uh, an event where all of the magicians in Michigan who are in the International Brotherhood of Magicians come together once a year called Michigan Magic Day and in that, during that forum, we also induct a few persons into what we call the Michigan Magic Day Hall of Fame. And since we didn't have the Michigan Magic Day, I still wanted to do the Hall of Fame. So that happened last night via live Zoom from the museum. I was hosting the event and the award went to Harry Blackstone Sr., Harry Blackstone Jr., and Jr.'s wife, Gay Blackstone. 
and it was star-studded to say the least. Now that sounds really cool and for somebody who you know wants to get into the you know the the, the magic museum you know hall of fame or what, what is what, what is the what is the requirements for that what do you look for in a magician to to be able to allow him to allow, allow him or her to ascend to that level yeah all of the magicians that are on there are predominantly related to michigan have had some influence in michigan relative to the promotion of magic and uh, we induct at least two or three every year most of those persons are it's posthumous for example harry blackstone senior died in 1965 oh wow but harry blackstone senior i think can be credited for bringing magic to michigan he had one of the largest worldwide shows at the time he was a contemporary of houdini by the way oh cool and it's interesting that they would travel all over the united states in trains, train show, uh, carry his show around. And then they would vacation in a little burg called Colon, Michigan. Do you know about Colon, Michigan? I do not. All right. Well, this is another destination that needs to be on your broadcast. Nice. But Colon, Michigan is the magic capital of the world. If you are any kind of magician, you absolutely know about Colon, Michigan. And it's sort of the place where everyone has to go at least once in their lifetime, if not every year during the magic get-together the first week of August. And this gathering commemorates the gathering of the Blackstone Show at Colon, Michigan in the early 1920s. That is just really super cool. And when you were bringing up the the subject, because for some reason when you said Harry Blackstone Sr. and Jr., it tickled something in the back of my head. Do they do they actually have a like a product line of magic tricks that they sell? Yeah, Harry Blackstone Jr. had developed his own magic kit. So the magic ah. set with all kinds of tricks in it, the Harry Blackstone set, yeah, and that would be I'm trying to remember er, early '80s. Yeah, that would seem about right because I was a kid in the early '80s. Yeah, mid '80s. Um, yeah, the Blackstone magic set, and he he featured prominently on the cover. In fact, visitors of the museum can see that magic kit on the second floor. Oh, that's a super cool. Talk about a trip back in time. Now. Let's talk a little bit more about because I, I like to explore this 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 world a little bit more about you know, magicians and being up on stage and stuff. And it, how many years did you say you practiced at it before you started getting out in front of people and and performing? I received a magic set in my preteen years, and it was at thirteen years old that I did my first paid performance. And then through high school, junior high and high school, I was performing, but mostly toward the end of my high school career, if you will, I did that as my job. Whereas some of my friends were working at grocery store or stocking shelves or yeah, whatever. I was doing magic shows. Man, that had to be like, as as a kid, that had to be like the coolest job in the world. Well, at the time I didn't really think of it that way. I, sometimes it was a, it was a task, but it was something that I chose to do. And, but, but, and it was enjoyable. And that's where I learned to be able to stand in front of an audience and also learned about magic, the many aspects of magic. I have also created five of my own tricks in time that are marketed. Now, uh, when, when you talk about creating a, a magic trick and marketing it, is this is this you're your selling this to other magicians? Yep, similar to the magic kit, but at a higher level because these are tricks that you would perform for an audience. Uh, the magic sets are, shall I say, juvenile where you have the, the little tricks and you can do f- for your friends and, and maybe your family, but 
typically would not take a magic set and perform it in front of an audience, especially for pay. Right. A paying audience. Yeah. The, the level of magic becomes a, a bit more, shall we say, uh, gold. You know, it's, 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 it's premium. Yeah, this is, these are the, the, the magic tricks that really dazzle people. Yeah, and they're expensive, but it makes for a good show. And any example of that would be watching even the magic shows today. For example, the Masters of Illusion on CW every week. That right. is produced by Gay Blackstone. The one I mentioned earlier, yes. who was uh, inducted in the Hall, Michigan Hall of Fame. And oh. She's the producer of that show. That is really cool. And I was just thinking when you talked about uh, the magic trick, it reminded me of an article I followed. I've always been a fan of Penn and Teller. And there's a trick that I saw Teller do when I was actually in Las Vegas where he had this like this like rose plant in a vase with a light shining on it. And there was like a shadow that was cast onto a piece of paper behind the behind the rose and he would go up and he would like cut the pedal he would cut the shadow of the pedal and the pedal would fall off and i guess that, go ahead i'm sorry that's his signature trick yeah his signature trick and i've i've seen it happen twice now both times i'm just i'm floored i'm like how in the world did he do does he do this and of course he's never revealed it to anybody that's his signature trick and it was a handful of years ago that I read an article that talked about how like a magician, I want to say like in Denmark or someplace in Europe, actually figured out how he did that trick and was offering to sell it to other magicians. And this actually launched a lawsuit where Teller was going after him to stop, you know, don't reveal, you know, how this is. So this is, you know, I, I, I didn't know that this world even existed where you could actually create magic tricks for other magicians to buy. So this is actually really cool. Yeah. And one of the best parts about being in this, if you will, fraternity is that we all respect each other's creations and appreciate the art of them. And for the most part, everyone knows who invented or created the trick. And, and, and again, we're talking at a higher level, not a novice that's first coming in. There are things to learn through time. But you, you end up learning, yeah, who developed this trick? And that's part of the whole discussion that we look at a magic trick and we go, oh, that's so-and-so's trick. Okay. And it, that's, it's, it's fun that way. Sure. Excellent. Okay. So with regards to the 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 museum and i know we're in in times of covid and everything else like that but what what are you you know what are you doing to make sure that if people do come to the museum that that they're safe that they have a enjoyable experience with you know with their family or whatnot what do you what do you what do you what do you what what do you have in place that to, to prevent when we opened in june one of our first requirements was the mandatory mask and we wanted that anyway and and we have uh, stations with the hand sanitizer and so on we are now officially closed for the season so i'm not thinking of or we're, we're really not thinking about uh, visitors coming in at this point but perhaps in april things will be a little better when we open uh, we're opening on april 1st again and if not we will continue the safety measures that we have we're a smaller organizations and facility so we don't have thousands of people coming through there if a family or a group comes in it's usually small numbers you don't run into each other too much hmm. okay excellent and as far as 
you know the the magicians that are there it do does you know does the organization do they get involved with a lot of you know fundraising or nonprofits things like that the museum itself we have a number of f- fundraising things that we do through the year our major one is we have membership drive and for $100 or higher you can get a little gift too as part of the membership but we have an individual membership which is can I say $50 and then $100 and up is the, it gives, we have the little gift. It's actually a reproduction of a poster on canvas. Right. In addition to that, we are eligible for some of the grants. Because but we rely on visitors too. Right. Because the museum itself is a, is a nonprofit. So that gives you access to those grants. Yes. As a nonprofit museum. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, that's really great. So every year we have, a gala event too, our major event for our members and other supporters of the museum, which includes or included a stage show and a little pre-show party, if you will. Okay, that's another fundraiser that that typically happens. Now, when you're talking, sure. When you're talking about people can become uh, a member, do they do they have to be a magician to be a member, or can it just be anybody of the, of the of the public? That's the best part of the museum, that it is open to the public, and it's showing magic tricks. So one does not have to be a magician to come to the museum or, for that matter, become a member. The membership is really a financial support for the museum. Okay. And it includes you know, free admission and other notifications relative to what kind of events we might have. Discounts. We also have a little tiny magic store, if you will, in the museum. And so some people have actually gotten started right there by buying a trick or two after their experience of walking through the facility. Excellent. And how big is the the museum? Wow. From front to back, it's 90 feet. Okay. Um, and it's a two-story building that was built in the 1860s as a bakery. Hmm. If you are a magician and I happen to be there, or if you personal message me or text me, I've offered magician-only tours. The fact is that about 40% of the collection is seen by the public. The rest is mysteriously held in other places. Nice. And so magician-only, if you, Cliff, came, even though you're not a magician, I would give you the partial magicians-only tour, which would include some of the storage areas. Nice. Nice. And then when you're talking about the the collection and stuff, is it... Is it just different, let's say, different props or costumes or, you know, whatever from, you know, different uh, magicians from around the world? Is it specific only to those magicians that are from Michigan? I'm going to answer the, this question with yes, all of the above. <laughs> it, when a person comes into the museum, they're first encountered with a mass of posters. These are authentic posters from the periods of these magicians. Blackstone, Keller, Thurston, Chung Ling Su, and other famous magicians of the early 20th century. In addition to those are more contemporary magicians, David Copperfield, Andre Cole, Mark Wilson, Doug Henning. Well, anyway, the walls are covered with these posters, and they're all, like I said, authentic. Then if you look around at your eye level, you'll see some props, some early props. Are one of our prominent props is uh, Blackstone's, some of Blackstone's magic. Harry Blackstone Jr. was very good friends with Bob Lund, 
and we've been able to wonderfully have the opportunity to get those uh, pieces in the museum. So they're actually uh, working magic props there. And we also have some authentic pieces from Houdini in the museum that belong to the Houdini family. His milk can escape. We have the buckets that he used to fill the water torture cell, it was called, where they hooked up shackles to his ankles and put him in upside down into a tank of water. They filled that tank with with warm water, those the buckets that they used in his performance are in the museum. Hmm. They're giant, uh, I don't know what they are, like 30-gallon brass buckets. Right. We have the magician that Houdini took his name from, Jean-Robert Houdin. Just take the Houdin, it's Houdin without the I, so Houdini. Right. We have some of, uh, a couple of his pieces, including a magic wand that was given to Bob long ago. The magic wand is used in performance by a lot of magicians. Some don't use it, but it's part of the, which I say, the costume of a magician. And Robert Houdin's wand is in our collection. We have statuary. We have some statues, some some ceramic pieces that were made by artists depicting magicians. There's uh, fine art in there. There's costumes. You mentioned Penn and Teller. We have their their suits. Teller gave us one of their suit sets. Those are on mannequins upstairs. Nice. We also feature local magicians. Bob Lund was interested in not only the international magician, but he really was fond of local magicians, any local magician. And he would collect even ephemera or paper, paper things, paper news, newsletters, business cards for these magicians. If they were on vacation in Canada, and there, he was reading a newspaper, there'd be an article about a magician. He would cut the article out and put it in a miscellaneous file. If he found two other pieces related to that magician, you got an official file. And in our archive library building, which is a separate place right. for magicians only, we have tens of, I mean, like, I think there's 30 filing cabinets full of this paper stuff on magicians. He has stuff on Houdini and material on Thurston, even a file folder for me when I was a teen magician. I don't, I'm not sure exactly how he got it, but he has had a file on me. Now, does he ever reach out to these people or did he used to and just say, I started a file on you? <laughs> I think that a lot of people started knowing about it. And so they'd send him things. So we have a lot of correspondence. Nice. In these file folders from magicians. Yeah. You know, greetings, Bob. Here's my latest, you know, flyer or business card. In addition, he collected them. And and the the beauty of this collection is that he was collecting as a as a child. So he's got stuff from the you know the twenties and the thirties, nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties in these file folders. Yeah, original photographs of persons, and it's a it's a huge collection, a gigantic library of books for magicians to research some one-of-a-kind pieces in that library. Wow, sounds absolutely beautiful, and I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing it. If uh, somebody wants to find, because I know you said that the, the, the museum right now is currently scheduled to be opened on April 1st, but if somebody wants to learn more about the, about the museum or you know, learn about you know, when you're going to be opening, whatever it is, what's the best way for them to, to follow you online? AmericanMuseumOfMagic.com. We also have a Facebook page, the American Museum of Magic, and that's a public page, so you can just like it and 
get news notifications that way. We're posting regularly on that. Some of the items that we sell, newer items, we've got, we're in the works right now of producing some t-shirts, some new t-shirts with the logo or some magic trick on it. We talk about the membership there. We also highlight magicians from time to time. That Robert Hodan that I just mentioned earlier, he was born on December 7th, 1805. So we just, you know, highlight that happy birthday, Robert Hodan kind of thing. Nice. And for our audience, we will have those links in the show notes down below. Jeffrey, it was great having you on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Okay. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I hope you can come over to the museum anytime. While we're closed now, um, Cliff, just text me and we'll arrange it. It doesn't matter what time or what day. I would love that, Jeffrey. Thank you very much. Okay. Hey, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, then subscribe to our email newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get new episode announcements. You'll get all kinds of great behind the scenes information on upcoming guests. Plus, you'll receive special offers from our guests and partners that you can only get through the email newsletter. Subscribing is quick, easy, and best of all, it is free. Just go to callofleadership.com email, type in your email address, and you're done. Once again, that's callofleadership.com email. I'll catch you in the next episode.